Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody that's here tonight and hope you've had a good afternoon. I feel like I lost an extra hour somewhere in this afternoon besides the one I lost last night. Uh, so, but gl good to see you here tonight. Glad to have you there on our social media platforms. Uh, we have Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Be sure to like, to heart, to subscribe there. Uh, be sure to retweet us on Twitter. Uh, follow us on Facebook. Uh, click the notification bell thing there on YouTube. That'll just get you the automatic uh, update there when we go live. And then also our phone live streaming. Uh, we'll be glad to give you that number if you need that. Just call our church office or I can give that to you in person uh, if you need that in person. And uh, I'm holding it upside down. <laughs> but um, we do want to welcome those who are joining with us on our phone live streaming. If you have any issues with phone live streaming, uh, just feel free to call us here at the church. We'll try to get you uh, fixed up for the next service uh, where you can call in to that number uh, and get things reset up where that you'll uh, always uh, get those notifications. Uh, while you're there online, go to our church website at highlandbaptistchurch.com. Go to the far right-hand side. Uh, you can click the Give Online tab there. Uh, we encourage you to take the time to do that uh, with your regular offering as well as the offering for the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Uh, just continue to be praying for our missionaries, using that all throughout uh, this month. Uh, you can also there under the info tab download uh, the worship bulletin uh, if you need those in person there in the window sills at the doors as you leave and then also we have the children's worship bulletins that are in this window uh, over here to my right to your left uh, you can also download those under the info tab as well as the prayer list and there's quite a few that's on the prayer list so be sure to get that downloaded and be praying for each one of those people that are on our prayer list uh, all throughout the, the coming week uh, as we'll update that list again on Wednesday. Uh, I think that's it that I need to mention. Brother Mike, you'll come. Take your hymnals and turn to 62, hymn 62, and the words will be up on the screen too. So uh, let's sing, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. <coughs> <Ms. Pat? coughs> All the way my Savior leads me. Can I doubt his tender mercy Who through life has been my guide Heavenly peace, divinest comfort Here by faith in him to dwell For I know whatever befall me Jesus doeth all things well For I know whatever befall me all the way my Savior leads me, cheers each winding path I tread, gives me grace for every trial, feeds me with the living bread. Though my weary steps may falter and my soul a thirst may be, gushing from the rock before me, oh, a spring of from the rock before me, lo, a spring of joy I see. All the way my Savior leads me, oh, the fullness of his love. Perfect rest to me is promised in my Father's house above. When my spirit clothed in Ages, Jesus led me all the way. This my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. Amen. Take your Bibles tonight, if you will, uh, and turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 21 again. We've got a long ways to go and a short time to get there. I think there's a song about that. 
And uh, you'll understand why I broke this into two parts, because uh, I don't know if I'm going to even get through this part in one, uh, just one here of the parables uh, tonight, because there's a lot that is so in-depth uh, in this parable that uh, I think you'll just glean and get a lot of information and a lot of application uh, for our lives. So uh, we're just going to begin, if you will, and stand and read verse 33. And then I'll just lay some uh, groundwork for us here. But chapter 21, verse 23, let's stand as we read God's word in honor of his word. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders and the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for the blessings that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for your word again uh, this evening. And we ask, Lord, that you will speak your truth into our hearts. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you'll make your word come alive, that it'll be vibrant, Lord, that it'll be applicable to our hearts and to our lives. And we just pray for your will to be done, for the name of Jesus to be glorified and uplifted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So that's where we began this morning and looking at verse 23. And all three of these parables are going to have to do with that question that they asked Jesus, by what authority do you do those things? Now, we saw this morning the parable of the two sons. We saw the confrontation there in verse 23 uh, where they were basically saying to, to him, show your ordination papers, show us your credentials, where's your Sanhedrin approval, how do you, how do you say uh, you, you stand in authority to do all of this? So we saw that confrontation. And then we saw the challenge from Jesus as he, he gives them an opposing question in verses 24 through verse 27. Remember, he didn't answer the question uh, with an answer. He gave a, he gave a question uh, for their answer. And he said, if you answer my question, I'll answer yours. And you remember that he said uh, that, that you tell me then was the ministry of John the Baptist from God or of men? That was his question. That was a tough question for them. Uh, and we said that they, they debated amongst themselves. If they were to say uh, it was from heaven, uh, then they have to admit that Jesus is the Messiah because that's what John the Baptist uh, had been teaching. If they say no, it's of earth, then their problem is that the whole nation believes that he was from God, that John the Baptist was, and, and so they're going to lose their credibility just like that. And so they called that huddle, they regrouped, and, and in verse 25, they discussed it, they reasoned among themselves, uh, they got in that continuous discussion, what are we going to say, what are we going to do, how are we going to answer this, uh, and, and we find out that in the end of their huddle in verse 27, they literally say, we don't know, we don't know, we can't give you an answer. And, and basically, they were the ones who should have been able to give an answer. So we saw the challenge. And then we saw the characterization of them and of us that Jesus lays out in chapter uh, 21 here in verse 28 through verse 31 uh, where he says to them, what do you think? And he begins laying out that parable for them of the two sons. The father has two sons uh, and he tells both sons, I want you to go into the vineyard and work. Well, son number one says, I'm not doing it, I'm not going but then sometime later, he repents and he turns and goes and works in the field. Son number two says, yes, I'll go, but he never does. And, and we thought about how there ought to be a number three in that story that, that said, I will, and that uh, did do it. But that wasn't the story. Uh, there were these two. And so he says, what do you think? Uh, and they're excited because they were able to answer that question. They were able to say, well, it's the one who said he wasn't going, but he did go. Uh, and it was the first one. And so now Jesus begins to make the connection from the parable back to the question of the authority that they had asked about when you read in verse 31 down through verse 32, how it connects with them. And in effect, he says to them, you are like that second son. You say, we will, we'll obey you, Lord. We'll do whatever you want us to, but you never do it. And, and so they pretend to obey God but they never go into the vineyard and they live under, uh, they never live under his terms and obey his commands. It's always all about them. And so he says 
that the prostitutes and the tax collectors, they're the ones who are going to go because they did believe when John the Baptist was preaching. They did come and were baptized, and they believed the truth of what he said. And he says they're going to go into heaven. Uh, and, and essentially, he was saying to the, to, the, to the religious leaders, and you're not because you're trusting in religion to get you into the kingdom. And so religion never gets you into kingdom. Our good works never get us into the kingdom. And sin repented of and forgiven doesn't keep you out. And so what a lesson that we learned this morning in that parable of the two sons. Well, now he goes right into another parable here, the parable of the servants of the vineyard. And that's where we come to verse 33. Verse 33 says this, hear another parable. And that's where we just want to stop. For just a moment. So keep in mind, this is the last week of Jesus' life. His time on this earth is coming to an end. On Friday of this week that we're reading through, he's going to die on the cross. This is Wednesday. And so on this Wednesday, he's in the temple. It's in the morning. He's there teaching the kingdom of God. He's there preaching the gospel. The day before he had cleansed the temple, uh, the day before that, he had ridden into town uh, on, the, on the, the donkey there. He had, he had rode into the city with all those hosannas and, uh, from the multitudes. Many of them believe that he's the Messiah. He's come back now on Wednesday to the cleansed temple, and the multitude is there again. He's teaching them. They're listening, even as we talked about this morning. They're, they're on their, the edge of their seat. They're listening to every word he's saying. And these religious leaders, these chief priests, these scribes, these elders, including the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and all of those who were in responsibility for the religious life of the nation and the temple itself, they were infuriated with his teaching because he taught contrary to everything that they uh, taught, because he taught things uh, that were internal and their religion was all external, because he began to unmask their hypocrisy and their pretense. And so he's moving freely throughout the temple, even as he's answering their questions, even as they tried to stop him from teaching by stopping him to ask these questions. And we find that they're threatened by all that, and in a moment of rage, they had that meeting together to see how they might stop him from swaying the people any further. And so they confronted him, and we found in Matthew 21, 23, they demanded of him to know, by what authority do you do these things, and where did you get that authority? And he responded in these three parables. And so we're looking at the second of these parables. You can just imagine, as he's telling this story, he literally has the audience in the palm of his hands. The vividness of this illustration of this parable uh, would have captivated them. And we'll see that indeed that's the case as we come to the conclusion uh, down in, 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 as we'll look here at verse 33 uh, again in just a moment. But notice he says there in verse 33, he says, hear another parable. Now he uses the Greek word there, alos, which means uh, another. It means another of the same kind. He's just given them a parable of these two sons, and here's another parable in the same style. But more than that, the parable of the two sons was a parable of judgment. And this parable that he's about to tell them is also another parable about judgment, another one of the same kind. Uh, because they've shown collectively a rejection of Jesus Christ. And so the parables he gives them are parables that bring upon them the judgment due to their rejection of him. And, and so we look there at verse 33, and he talks here about planting a vineyard. So he says, there was a master of a house, in verse 33, who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And so when we think about the vineyard here, know that the land of Israel is literally covered with these kind of vineyards in the time of Jesus. A major mainstay of their agricultural society was the cultivation of vineyards. So when he uses this illustration, everybody knows exactly 
what he's talking about. They understand what a vineyard is. They understand the process that goes on in a vineyard and the labor and the work that goes on in a vineyard. So it's not like us. We don't all have vineyards. Some of you may have some great vines, but these had, that's what was their sustenance. This is how they provided their living. They worked in the, in the vineyards uh, to produce the grape juice that they sold then in the marketplaces, and it was their livelihood. Most of us don't have that kind of livelihood uh, for an agricultural uh, culture uh, today. So notice this serves here as a very good illustration for Jesus to use in spiritual areas as it did for Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 5 when he uses a similar illustration to make a similar point about judgment. In fact, the parallels between this parable and what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 5 are so interesting. I'd encourage you to take some time this week and read both parables here to compare them. We're going to see a few little things, but we're not going to go into depth about the relationship here to Isaiah. But I'd encourage you to read both in your spare time. The vineyard is a very common thing, as we said, in their life. Uh, first, we find out what's going on here is you have to have a certain householder. There's a man who owns this estate, and he decides he's going to take a certain portion of land, probably a slope on a hillside, because that was the common place for vineyards, and he plants a vineyard. And then he tells us that he puts a fence around it, or some versions use a hedge. Now, when you think of, think of a fence, we're not talking about uh, posts and, and, and chain link fence or, or post and wire fence. They didn't have that uh, in their day. Uh, we're talking more about many times about rocks that have been built up as a wall, as a hedge, uh, about it's kind of like a fence would be for us today uh, in protecting this vineyard. So he, he hedges this vineyard around about it because vineyards were vulnerable to wild animals and to robbers. And so in order to protect it, they were always hedged about. Now, there could be sometimes a moat around the vineyard. Uh, on some occasions, water. Uh, and there could be a wall built around them. So not when we think of a fence, don't think of it uh, as we think of fences uh, today. Uh, there was a hedge. Sometimes they used a, a thorny hedge. Often cactuses were used. And you'll see that if you ever go over to Israel or you see pictures of Israel where you see a vineyard. Many times that's what's used is, is cactuses to make a hedge, to make like a fence around a vineyard to protect it from uh, the wild animals, to protect it from the robbers and thieves. And so you can see that even to this day. The point being, this man took care in planting this vineyard and he took care in protecting this vineyard. And then it tells us that he dug a wine press in this vineyard. That's the place where the grapes could be turned into the juice. And even if you go to Israel today, uh, you'll see many remnants of old wine presses. A wine press could be nothing more than, than just a stone in the ground. And that stone would, would have a, a shallow uh, cutout basin, a very wide, shallow, uh, filled with grapes. And, and it would be there that they would have a trough that would run to another basin. And you would squeeze the grapes uh, many times with your feet. Sometimes, you ever seen the, I love Lucy episode where she's <laughs> that's kind of what I have in, in my image with the, the wine press you think of that in Italy but they did whatever they needed to do to press those grapes to get the juice to run out and, and then it would run down a trough into like a vat uh, or a basin that was carved in another piece of stone and so as they were crushed that juice would flow down that trough and be collected in that vat from which it would then be scooped and put into wine skins, put into pots, put into jars, and that was the way they turned their, their grapes into grape juice and then into wine. And then it tells us that this man built a tower. A tower was there for three purposes, really. For security, for shelter, and for storage. A tower would allow someone to, to watch. To, to be sure that nobody was trying to invade the vineyard, to come in when the harvest was there and just wipe out the vineyard and steal all the grapes, and then the owner would have uh, no livelihood there. It, it would be a place also of shelter in the event of bad weather. Uh, was a problem. And it would be a place of storage, a place where you could store uh, the, the implements and the tools and the things necessary for the care of the vineyard. Now, the, the point of all of that is to demonstrate to you that this man took great care in doing it right. 
He really did a good job of putting this vineyard together. He was careful to supply the security that it needed. And then it says he leased this land out, this vineyard, to, a ten to some tenant farmers. A and he went into a far country. Literally, he goes far away. He works out this arrangement, has a contract with these people who are leasing it, and they're to give him a certain portion of the crop each year, the remainder of which belongs to them for their own livelihood. So they could have done well with this. I mean, think about it. It, it was a properly prepared vineyard. It was properly protected. The crop, if it was cared for, would have flourished, uh, given the factors of weather and, and their careful uh, cultivation, they could have done very well. Well, this man has gone to all the extremes necessary, leased it out to these people, and he went off and moved off away. Now, this wouldn't be an uncommon thing in their setting. The hearers would have completely understood that that's what a landowner would have done. He would have entrusted it to the laborers in the field. It was very common to lease the land for cultivating purposes. And so go to verse 34. So it says in verse 34, after he went into another country, when the season for the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. So literally the season of fruits, the harvest time, the time when you calculated the product had come, and verse 34 tells us when it drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get fruit. In other words, it was time to collect his portion. So he sends his servants to receive from them what was due to him. Now, they might have given it to him in, in currency because they could have taken the juice and, and sold it in the marketplace uh, and then take the money and give him his fair portion uh, of the money. They could have been uh, giving him uh, the juice itself, uh, his portion of the juice itself. Uh, that would have been very common. Uh, but the servants come in his name, in his behalf, to receive what is due to him. But then an amazing series of events takes place in this parable. Notice verse 35. We go back to the tenants. He said, And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Now, if you read Mark's parallel account, you'll find in Mark 12, verse 3 through verse 5, he sort of singly identifies the sequence. He says, and they took him, took the, first, <laughs> took the first servant, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed, verse 3 says. Verse 4 of Mark 12 says, again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And so he sends another, and they killed him, and so with many others. So he sends all kinds of servants to them. All the time. Some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, in verse 6, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will, he's saying, they will surely, surely they'll respect my son. So get that picture here of these servants. One came, they beat him. The next one comes, they kill him. The next one comes, they stone him. Matthew just pulls them all into one verse and says they beat one, killed another, and stoned another. That's amazing. But when you read Mark's gospel, you begin to realize there's more than three. There's a whole lot more. There's many others. And, and so here's this good man who had given them this piece of land to cultivate by which they could have prospered themselves. He sends his servants just to collect what is due him by virtue of the arrangement and the fact that it's his land, it's his vineyard, and they beat one servant. And the word there means to scourge. It means to flay. It means to beat him raw and bloody. And then it says they killed another. And in order to, to sort of distinguish that from stoning, they also, which also brought death, uh, we maybe could say they killed instantly or immediately this person. It's an aorist tense verb. It's as if they murdered that person rather quickly, maybe with a knife, maybe with a spear or a sword. And then they stoned another. 
Uh, the word there is lithobaleo, which basically means to stone to death. And so they whipped one of them bloody, instantly murdered another. They progressively crushed the life out of a third by dropping stones or boulders on him. It's incredible these tenant farmers, given such privilege, given such an awesome opportunity here, had become independent. They had become resentful. They had become filled with hatred for, another, for the owner. And they had become overly possessive. They wanted everything. They didn't want to give it to who it was due. But notice this. The owner is so gracious. I mean, think about it. What would you have done after you sent the first guy? And he comes back all beat up. I mean, you probably would have went with some pretty strong actions. So he sends, though, one and sends another and he sends another. Look on down, if you will, in verse 36. It says, again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. They killed them all. No matter who he sent, the same reaction. Notice what this shows us about the vineyard owner. It shows us something generous, something about the generous, gracious, merciful patience of this landowner as he continues to send servant after servant after servant, and they continue to kill them and to kill them and to kill them. Now, some critics have said at this point, well, this makes this parable a little far-fetched. Nobody in their right mind would have kept on sending servants knowing that's probably what's going to happen to them. That's what's happened to the last 14 before. What's going to make it any different for the 15th one? And so some critics have said it's just too far-fetched. And the reply to that is that's correct. And neither would they keep, uh, keep killing them uh, pro probably. There is, th this is where this parable becomes utterly uncommon. So, so far, it's a common story. But now things have twisted and changed to the people are thinking, wait a second, why does he keep sending a servant and letting them kill him? Why didn't he do something about those who are killing him? And so it becomes uncommon here. It's the uncommonness of such a thing the atrocity of such a thing, the unbelievability of it, the astonishment of it that Jesus is making his point from. Because in other words, he's saying, if you think this is amazing, then what do you think about its application? It's the extreme uncommonness of it. The point he wants to make is that. And so they killed all the servants. Look at verse 37. And so Matthew says, just like Mark tells us, finally he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Surely they'll respect my son. That phrase, finally, or last of all, is full of emotion. It's full of sadness because here's a grieved man, and all he's got left is his son. And he says, I'll send him. No one left but him. They'll respect my son. That verb is a very interesting verb. It's the word intrepo. It basically means to turn oneself around, being ashamed of hurting or injuring. It's a very rich word. And he's saying here, certainly they'll turn around from that behavior because of the shame of it. I mean, they wouldn't do that. Surely they wouldn't do that to my son. They'll stand in awe of my son. They'll have respect for my son. They'll have regard for my son. Surely that's the way they'll act. Notice verse 38. But. What a word. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, the heir, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Wow. Wow. What a story Jesus has just told these people. 
Now they've killed the man's son. They knew who he was. There was no mystery. Oh, this is just another one of the servants. No, they knew it was the son. They knew exactly who he was. And they planned his murder. It was premeditated, first degree, the result of careful, wicked planning with full knowledge of who this was. They premeditated his murder so that they could control everything. It's unbelievable. That's the illustration. Now you can just imagine that the people who are hearing this story from Jesus, man, they're sitting on the edge of their seats. And they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe these guys did that. And then not only killed the servants, they killed this man's only son. They're hanging on every word. They know it's a parable. They know it has a spiritual point in mind. But the story itself is just so captivating that even without the parabolic aspect or without the interpretation, we're captivated by the evil of these men and by the sadness of the father who has lost all of his servants and now his son. And so now we move from the illustration to the conclusion of the parable in verse 40. Through 41. So again, in a very traditional rabbinical way, he leads them down the path and makes them conclude the story themselves. Notice verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Anybody got to think about that? You know what the owner is going to do to the tenants. And that's, in fact, what they go on to say. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. So the assumption here is that the owner has the means and has the wherewithal, has the resources that the servants didn't have. And they couldn't protect themselves, but he can. And when he gets there, what's he going to do, Jesus is saying. Well, the pe people certainly knew by now in their thinking uh, would have been in a rage at the terrible wickedness and the cruelty they've heard in this story. It's pretty obvious what he would do. And those self-righteous religious leaders with this smirk of, of self-congratulation, a pat on their backs that, that they're ready to give their moralistic answer and parade their righteousness, they do in verse 41. They said, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out his vineyard. So they answer. And they love to hear themselves saying such moral things. They love to feel, to, to feel so irate at injustice and evil. And that feeds their hypocrisy. They say, I, I take it they is the religious leaders. Luke tells us that the people gathered around. Some of them cried, God forbid, no, 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 surely not. In other words, those people, when they heard what will he do to them, and the leaders said, why, well, he's going to miserably destroy the wicked farmers, the tenants, and give the vineyard to someone who will give, uh, give them the fruits of it. They cried out, no, 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 as if they were unable to imagine what he would do to them. And they transferred their sorrow to those who were going to be devastatingly punished. They were so caught up in the story, perhaps, that they were just unable to imagine what he would do to such wicked people. And so the sympathy of their heart begins to cry out even on behalf of the wicked. Or maybe it was that some of the people already began to see the true interpretation of this parable and they sensed that spiritual reality that created great fear in their hearts. Now Luke doesn't tell us which of those is what happens. But Luke's the one who tells us that there were those who cried out, no, 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 surely not. It could have been both of those. But but. Two things are said in verse 41. Right out of the mouth of these leaders, and they condemn themselves. They say he will miserably destroy these wicked men and leave his vineyard to other tenants, to other farmers, who will give him the fruits in their season. So there are two things here. First is judgment. Second is replacement. Mark that. First is judgment. Second is replacement. And so they said it with their own mouths, 
and they've concluded the illustration. Now here's what else I want you to see. The explanation. Because Jesus sets them straight in verse 42. So in verse 42, we see this. Many people miss this. But I want you to see here in these verses, this is the explanation. It's so powerful because Jesus speaks explaining the parable, but explaining it in a veiled way. Watch verse 42, the explanation. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures this? Have you never read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, you just heard me read that, and you may have thought to yourself, what does that have to do with this parable? I mean, I thought we were talking about vineyards, and here we're talking about stones, and we're talking about builders. I mean, it's like you're confusing the analogies here. We're mixing the metaphors. What is he saying? Now, that doesn't seem to be much of an explanation at first, does it? It's amazing how many commentators even just sort of pass it off as well. Jesus is sort of uh, moving on to another idea here, and Matthew sort of drops this in uh, here out of place from where it really belongs. No, it is sheer divine genius, and you'll see in a moment why. It's a quote out of Psalm 118, verse 22 through verse 23. The verses say this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So this is a psalm that was written hundreds of years before Jesus ever set foot on this planet. This is the same psalm that the Hosannas come from. Wow. Wow. Two days before that they had offered to Jesus. And even the day before by those children in the temple. Psalm 118 was familiar to them. And they knew what that verse said. And it's the prophecy that the Lord uses to explain this parable. He begins by saying to them, and it's very sarcastic. He says to them, did you never read in the scriptures? Ain't you ever read your Bible? You ever studied your word? I mean, note who's he talking to. He's not talking to the common people. He's talking to the religious leaders. Think about that. He's saying to them, you who pride yourself on spending dawn till dusk reading the scriptures, who, who you, you who say you know the scriptures forwards and backwards, you who excel in the law, did you miss that one? It's an indictment to them. Did you miss the one that said there was a stone rejected? that became the head of the corner and that the Lord would do that and it would be marvelous when he did it. Did you miss that? Now the heart of what Psalm 118 verse 22 and 23 is saying is very simple. When builders wanted to build a building, they needed a cornerstone. And a cornerstone is the most important stone in the building. It's the key in the foundation. It's the key, of course, and support for the roof but more than that, it sets the angles of the walls. So they would construct the, the cornerstone apart off from the, the, the building site. And they would make sure that everything, every part of the cornerstone was plumb. It was perfect. It had to be perfect. Because if it wasn't perfect, anybody who's built before, you know if, if you're off an eighth of an inch at the start, you're going to be off a whole lot more when you get down the path there. And, and the house isn't going to fit together just right. And so that's what this cornerstone is like. It's, it's the key uh, to, to making everything uniform in the building that maintains itself. If the cornerstone is off, then way down there somewhere the whole building is off. And so the cornerstone it is the most carefully selected of all stones that the building might be set to its walls and its form in perfect order. And cornerstones... They weren't little baby stones. They were massive stones. I went on a trip to Israel several years ago, and we saw some of the cornerstones in the Herodian Wall uh, that rises to surround the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. There's one of those stones on the corner that's 32 
feet long by three feet by two feet. One stone quarried by hand. There's another stone that is just one of the foundation stones down at the base of the Herodian wall that's 12 meters long and weighs tons. It is humongous. It it almost uh, would stretch from pole to pole here uh, in our sanctuary that long. And it's probably from me that deep and from about this down to the floor. It's huge, it's massive. And so uh, you, you have these, I mean, how these things were quarried and, and how they were moved is still even unknown to this day. But a cornerstone of such a great structure was a key stone. And so in selecting one, they wanted to be sure that it was perfect. And he says, as does the psalmist, that there was a stone which the builders rejected. They said that can't, it can't do. It's not adequate. It's not the right stone. It's not perfect. We rejected and they threw it away. And it became later, the prophecy says, the head of the corner. And who did it? The Lord did it. It was the Lord's doing and it's a wonder in our eyes. In other words, God brings back a stone that man rejected and puts it in the most significant place. You may be saying, well, what's this psalm talking about? What's this stone? Well, in the Old Testament, many times when you see a prophecy, they'll have a double meaning. In the prophecy in the Old Testament, it's Israel in this psalm. Israel was a stone which the empire builders, the, the, the nations of this world, had ignored Israel. They saw Israel as insignificant, as unimportant. They had discarded Israel. They had no place for Israel in the building of their great empires, but not the Lord. Because the stone Israel, which indeed is the cornerstone of the redemptive history of the world, which the world had despised and rejected, God takes the cornerstone of Israel and sets it in the place of significance in the building of his redemptive plan. I mean, the world may reject Israel and their place in history, but God knows they signify the key place in the redemptive plan. So God miraculously keeps picking Israel up off the discarded stone pile and putting it back into his plan as his key cornerstone. That's historic and a very important point to note. This is a small nation which continues today to exist. It's the cornerstone of the divine plan of God for redemptive history. But there was something even more than that in that verse. Because much of the Psalms give us a messianic prophecy. They give us a messianic perspective. And there's a double fulfillment. There's something in that psalm that's intended to go far beyond the nation of Israel and to talk about one who comes out of the the loins of that nation Israel. Let me show you in Acts chapter 4, verse 2. You may jot some of these passages down, but Acts chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, Peter's preaching and he says, Let it be known to all you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter's preaching in the city of Jerusalem. He's addressing the leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, the same group that we see in this parable that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 21. If you read in, in Acts Uh, For there, you'll find uh, that that there's a lame man who had been healed uh, by the beautiful gate. And this says in verse 11, it says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So who is the stone then, ultimately, of Psalm 118? Who is it? Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. The stone which the builders, what? Rejected. Whom God raised from the dead has now become the head of the corner. The rejected stone is the crucified Christ. The restored cornerstone is the resurrected Christ. It couldn't be more clearly said than that. In fact, Peter reiterates that same message over in his letter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 through verse 8. And it says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, 
I am laying in Zion, in Jerusalem, I, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Peter says the same thing. Jesus is the cornerstone. Paul says it over in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together in a, into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Now listen carefully and get this. The Lord is saying by quoting Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23, the men in the tenant farmer situation took the son out and they slew the son. And these leaders say, well, when that man comes back, he's going to miserably destroy those wicked sinners and take the vineyard away from them. And Jesus says to them, the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner haven't you read that? And what he's saying is this, the stone is the one who's standing in front of them, Jesus Christ. The, the rejection consists of the rejection of Israel. The restoration consists of his resurrection and his following glory. And so here's why this is an explanation of this parable. As we said, the, sun, the stone is the sun. The builders are the farmers in this parable. That's the parallel. Just like the farmers rejected the sun, so the builders rejected who? The stone. The stone is Jesus. And so the builders represent Israel and its religious leaders. The parallel then between the explanation passage prophecy from the Old Testament and the parable is the parallel between a stone and a son, between builders and farmers. And just like the builders rejected the stone who is Jesus Christ, these farmers rejected the son who is Jesus Christ. The parable then is telling us that the son is Jesus himself the one who's standing before them. And then who is the householder that sent the son? God the Father. What's the vineyard? It's the sphere of God's blessing. Because if you look down to verse 43, he says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. So now Jesus has moved from uh, the, the, the cornerstone here and moved from uh, what, he, what he had said, what they had said, uh, that the owner was going to beat, beat them miserably and it'll be taken from them and given to someone else. And so now he says in verse 43, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from who? You. Here he's making the personal application and, and given to a people producing its fruit. And so he's giving that explanation there, uh, who this is. It's the kingdom of God. Then who are these servants who were sent and murdered? They're the prophets. What a parable. What an explanation. And he puts the explanation in the passage of Scripture, which they affirm to believe. They already affirm to believe Psalm 118. And he's saying, just like those farmers rejected that son and killed him, you are going to reject the stone. But one day God is going to raise that stone again and put it back in the corner. That's the explanation. God the householder planted a vineyard, a place of blessing, a place of salvation. And you got in that place of blessing and you hoarded that and you misused that and you misappropriated that and you robbed from God what was due him and you never gave him the glory to his name and you never demonstrated the fruit of repentance and you never showed the fruit of righteousness and you gave God nothing. And when God sent his prophets to you, one after another of those prophets, you killed them. Tradition tells us, it comes from Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo, that they took Isaiah the prophet and, and, and with a wooden saw, they sawed him in half. 
It may be what Hebrews 11 verse 37 is referring to when it talks about the men of faith who were being sawn asunder. They took Jeremiah, and you remember they threw him into a pit. And tradition says that ultimately he was stoned. They rejected Ezekiel. Amos had to run for his life. Zechariah was rejected and stoned. At 1 Kings chapter 22 and verse 24 says that Micah was smashed in the face by the people who wouldn't hear the message that he gave. And that was the norm. That's how they treated the prophets, the kings, the high priests, the leaders of the people, the religious people. That's how they treated God's prophets. And you turn a couple of pages further in your Bible to Matthew 23 and verse 31. Jesus is talking to the same people. And here's what he says in Matthew 23, 31. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. You may be able to say, well, I didn't do it. That was my daddy. That was my granddaddy. But he says, you are witnesses against yourself that you are sons of those mur who murdered the prophets. That's how they're identified. They are sons of those who killed the prophets. And he says this in verse 32 through 35. He says, fill up then the measure of your fathers because you're just like them. You're, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell. Verse 34 says, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakai, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. What your fathers did, you're going to keep on doing. And what they did is exactly what the Apostle Paul did when he was known as Saul. They killed one of the prophets right in the temple. That was the norm. They rejected the prophets. They rejected the son. And he's saying, you're going to keep on rejecting. And they did. What a remarkable thing this is. Now, let me just give you a footnote here that's amazing. I believe this is one of the most missed and yet most clear claims to deity that Jesus ever gives. He says here, God sent you prophets, but God sent you also a son. In Mark 12, verse 6, he says, an only son. And so Jesus is distinguishing himself as the son of God, sent from God as different than the prophets. He's not a servant like, the, like their servants. He's a son. It's a claim to deity. And in the parable, he's the heir. To him belongs the inheritance is the implication. This is the son. And it's a remarkable claim that Jesus is making here to be the son of God. A claim that they wanted him dead for. A claim uh, here that, that there was just no way around it. He claimed to be the only son of God, not a prophet like the other prophets, not even the best prophets, because nothing less will do than he is the incarnate son of God. Either he's that or he's a false prophet and a liar. And they knew who he was. And so they say in verse 38, among themselves, this is the heir. They knew who he was. They saw his miracles. They heard his words. They knew who he was, but they wanted him dead because they wanted to possess the kingdom on th their own terms. Wow. What a blindness. What evil. They knew who he was. In fact, when he rose from the dead, do you remember what they did? They bribed the soldiers to lie about his resurrection. They knew the truth, but they were unwilling to accept it, even like people today. There is no lack of evidence. There's no lack of credibility regarding Jesus' authority. They wanted him dead because they were afraid to lose their position and their power and their control. You realize that Jesus is here telling them to their face that I know what you're fixing to do. You're fixing to kill me. That's right. No surprise to him. He's not a victim. He said, I'm not having my life taken from me. I lay it down of myself. Notice again in verse 39, 
and they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. In the parable, they took that son out of the vineyard. That's consistent too because Christ was crucified. It says in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured outside the gate. So the parable's clear. The illustration, the conclusion, the explanation. But here's the application in verse 43 and verse 44. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So the application, whatever veil may have remained over the, those dark minds, is, is taken off in verse 43. And, and they had said it back in verse 41, it would be taken from them. And that's what he says is going to happen to you. The kingdom of God is being taken from you. And, and Jesus says to those leaders of Israel, you've lost the right to the place of blessing. And God turned from Israel. And that was the end of a great day. The end of a great era. God turned away from Israel, the people of blessing. And he says, I'll give it to a nation. What nation? The word there means people. What people? Well, the same nation that Peter speaks of in 1 Peter chapter 2, a holy nation church the redeemed of this age so those two results a kingdom of God shall be taken from you given to someone else taken away that's sad that's replacement the replacement we talked about earlier they forfeited it Israel was unblessed and you might ask will they ever come back yes they will God will graft them in, as, as it says in Romans, all Israel will be saved. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. The day will come, says Zechariah, when they will look on him whom they pierced and mourn for him as an only son. Salvation will come to Israel. But for now, they're set aside. And here's where we go back to what we've been studying on Wednesday nights. Romans chapter 9, verse 25 and 26 says, we're in the book of Joel now, but we were in the book of Hosea before. It says, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. A new people, a new nation, a holy nation. Not ethnically defined, but defined by faith in Christ. What a powerful message for us tonight. That there is only one hope, and that is in the Son, who is the cornerstone. The one who has been rejected over and over and over throughout history. And if you reject him, what does it say will happen to you? It says there, the one who falls on this stone, in verse 44, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it'll crush him. It'll crush him. It's like it's, it's going to pulverize him into powder. It's going to grind him to powder. Couldn't be translated any better than that. Scattering you to nothingness. You do harm to Christ. You seize Christ. He's saying, you kill him, you'll be broken. And then you would have thought, Surely that's going to bring revival to them. Surely it's going to bring repentance after they heard that. But notice verse 45 and 46 as we close. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived, they understood, they knew that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Did it bring revival? Did it bring conviction? Did they turn their hearts to Jesus? No. They still are trying to seize him anyway. They're trying to arrest him. But because of the people, they wouldn't do it. We learn about God's grace in this parable. We learn about his hope. We learn about his blessing. And how he was patient over and over and over with the vineyard owners to keep sending his servant.
hearts. He kept on sending them because he loved them, because he wanted them to give what was due to him. In the overall story, to give God the glory. And they wouldn't. They wouldn't. Oh, that we today would give the glory to God and declare his praises to the world around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what we've learned in this story. That we've learned about the deity of Christ. He was the stone. We've learned that he is the son. We've learned about his willingness to die. He knew what was ahead. He knew where they were taking him. He knew they were going to murder him. He, he told them to their faces. And he never tried to avoid that. What a willingness to die for us. And so, Father, I pray that we have heard that tonight in this message. That if we're here tonight and we don't know Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, we would know that he loved us with a love that is so uncomparable that he has kept on sending people to us to tell us the gospel message. Over and over we've heard people proclaim the good news of the gospel and we continued to reject the message and he kept on sending people to our lives. He keeps on showing us that he loves us over and over and over and over. Lord, I pray we would not be like those religious leaders who rejected the Son. Father, I pray that we would come to the place to say, Dear God, I stand before you a sinner, and I need you as my Savior. And I come to trust in Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. I, I, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe Jesus died on that cross for me, that he was buried in the tomb and arose on the third day so I could have eternal life. And I ask you, Lord, to come into my life and save me and help me to live for you all the days of my life. And Father, I pray that there will be those who will hear that message and they will come tonight or if they're online, that they would respond online to let us know of their decision so we can be able to follow up with them and to encourage them in their walk with you. But Lord, I pray that we, as your people, who you have given us such a great gift, such a great opportunity, such a great blessing, of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, Lord, that we would not squander that precious gift. Lord, that we would share it with others around us. And Lord, that we would proclaim the name of Jesus. And Father, I pray that our lives will exemplify who he is, and that we will bring glory and honor to you through our actions, through our words, through our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand, as we sing our hymn of invitation, Jesus paid it all. Will you come this evening as we sing? Look forward to seeing you back Wednesday night. Just a word of reminder, we won't have Awana uh, this Wednesday night with it being spring break, so uh, kids will enjoy <laughs> their time off. Uh, but we will still be having our regular Bible study. Uh, we'll be hopefully finishing up the book of Joel on Wednesday night. And so come and join us then if you can. Uh, come and join us in person if you can't. You can find us there uh, online at 6 o'clock uh, with our, our time of prayer as well as our Bible study through the book of Joel. So you be safe, have a blessed week, and we'll see you this Wednesday night.